Welcome to No Man's Land, shining the spotlight on powerful women in agriculture while empowering all women in agriculture, going where no man has gone before. Well, I'm excited today because we have my dear friend and peer, Director of Missouri Agriculture, Chris Chen. Chris, it has been a while since we've talked, but thank you for being on the program with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tyne. I always enjoy visiting with you. So Director Chen and I go back quite a bit, uh, but you know, she, she, when did you take on the role as Director of Missouri Agriculture? January 9th of 2017. January 9th of 2017. When you got that call, Director Chen, what, what was it like? Well, I did not see it coming. It wasn't something that I had planned for, um, but I truly believe when God opens a door, he expects you to walk through it. Um, The problem was is when that door opened at first, I thought I was too busy to walk through that door. (laughs) And with a lot of encouragement from my husband and his family, we figured out a way for me to walk through that door and say yes to this amazing opportunity for the state of Missouri and for me personally. Yeah, so at first, you know, you you thought you were too busy. Why were you reluctant? What was going through your mind? As I know you juggle being a mom, you juggle with your career, you do so much, you're, you're an advocate, you do a lot in agriculture. So why were you so reluctant at first? Well, you know, I play an important role in our family farm, just like every member of our family does. And my role was to do the financial and all the record keeping for the family farm in our feed mill. So that meant that, you know, if I wasn't there, who was going to pay the bills? Um, but thanks to technology and a lot of um, creative thinking, we figured out a way that I could still do that. You know, my nights and weekends are filled with writing bills and doing some record keeping. Some of it we had to farm out to our veterinarian's office. Um, You know, and the other thing was I was worried about my kids, you know, worried about am I still going to be available enough to to see them, to not miss out on the day-to-day things because we knew this meant me moving to Jefferson City through the week. Um, And as everyone knows, I'm an advocate for agriculture and I've been very vocal about issues on farm life and and things that impact my family farm. And so I was a little nervous at first that I was not going to be able to continue that advocacy role. Um, And then we realized that I could continue to be an advocate. I would just be doing it as a new role as the director of agriculture. So tell our listeners where you're from, where your farm is, and then how far away that is from Jeff City where uh, the Missouri State Capitol is. Yeah. So my farm is in Clarence, Missouri, which is in the northeast part of the state. And it's about an hour and 40 minute drive um, to Jefferson City one way. So we knew it wasn't going to be feasible for me to do that every day. Um, I do try and get back to the farm one night a week so that I can see our son who's still in high school. I think it's really important that he knows mom did not leave him, Mm -hmm. um, even though I think he enjoys mom not being around (laughs) as much with that eagle eye on him. So how have the kids? I mean, what, what are your kids' names again, and how old are they? Yeah, so Rochelle is our daughter, and she's 20. She's a sophomore at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and our son Connor is a sophomore in high school. He's 16. So how has this new role as director of Missouri Agriculture, how's it been perceived by the kids? You know, they're really excited about it. Um, They know mom has a lot of new responsibilities, and they are very respectful of that. Um, They're very good about sending me a text message that says, hey, mom, I need to talk to you. Is now a good time? Um, So I really appreciate that. We try and connect as much as possible thanks to technology. Our daughter, we Snapchat a lot. That's how she likes to communicate. Um, My son, Connor, 
Uh, he hates to do FaceTime with me. He'll do it with his <laughs> friends, but it's not a cool thing to do with your mom. Um, so we do a lot of texting back and forth, a lot of phone calls. But, you know, Rochelle and I, we do FaceTime from time to time um, when her technology and my technology both sync up at the same time to work. Um, but, you know, thanks to cell phones and things of that, it's a lot easier to stay in touch with my kids today than it would have been 15 years ago. Well, this, this has to be, Chris, like a dream job for you, right? I mean, I mean, was that ever in the realm of possibilities for you, something you had thought about, something you wanted to achieve at some point in your life? You know, this is a dream job. Um, like I said, it wasn't something that I had chased after. I had mm -hmm. thought about, you know, what would I do later in life once my kids were grown and they had left the house? Because I like to stay busy and I like to be involved. You know, our daughter, when she was in high school, I chased her around the track at track meets. <laughs> Um, softball games, basketball games, you know, we were always on the go. And so when she left the nest, um, you know, I, it was starting to slow down because our son Connor wasn't quite as involved in things as she was. And so, you know, having this opportunity present itself was kind of you know, a dream come true. I knew I wanted to continue to be a leader for agriculture once our kids left the nest, but I wasn't sure which avenue I was going to take. And so when this door opened, it opened up, um, it was kind of an answer to a prayer that I didn't even know I had yet. Well, you, you keep talking about opportunities, and I know there's there's even more opportunities to come in your role as Missouri Director of Agriculture, but there's also some challenges, Chris. I mean, when we look at agriculture today, anytime you you, you watch our programs or pick up a, a magazine or read anything on the web, um, it doesn't take you long to figure out the challenges that agriculture faces. And so you coming into this role, now that agriculture's had a few years of some severe economic headwinds, what challenges did you really foresee? and lay out in the beginning that you wanted to tackle from the start? Well, you know, one of the challenges that when I took over this position that the state of Missouri was dealing with was the dicamba challenge. Um, and so I knew we needed to be very proactive in that and make sure that we handled it the correct way. Um, that's a very important tool that our farmers need to have in their toolbox. And we want to continue to have new technologies available. Um, so we knew right away that was one of the things we wanted to address. We wanted to allow farmers who wanted to use that technology to find success, but we also wanted farmers who chose not to use the technology to have success too. So there was a very fine line there that we needed to walk. Another thing that I wanted to address was a lot of the misconceptions that are out there today about agriculture. You know, technology is moving into every part of our lives, whether it's um, in our homes, in our work every day, medical fields, you know, it's just endless. Um, our kids in schools today, they have tablets. You know, when I was a kid, we had a pad of paper. Um, and so I want to make sure that consumers today understand that while everything in their life has technology improvements, agriculture and food is the same way. And I wanted them to become comfortable with the changes that we were making on our farms and let them know that some of the questions and concerns they might have about those, those technologies, we've had too as farmers and ranchers. And we've asked the same thing. We put it through a, a very serious litmus, litmus test uh, because we feed our family the same food that we raise for consumers. Let's go back to the Dicamba conversation. So last year, uh, we knew there was possibly some some issues that we would have just based on uh, the number of acres that Dicamba would possibly be used on last summer, and that 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 did happen, and the number of acres that were not tolerant to Dicamba technology. So go back to when you figured out in Missouri that you had a problem on your hands that we had, whether it was from drift, volatility, didn't know the reason, but knew that damage was going on. You had, how many different complaints did you have last year with that, Kamba? 
We ended up with over 310 complaints that were alleged dicamba abuse. So when you realized that this was becoming a problem, what was your first thought? What did you do to kind of tackle it head on? Well, you know, we had a white wall in the Department of Ag where I brought my team in and we just put every idea out there up on that wall and we would listed all the pros, all the cons. We shot holes through every single idea to try and figure out the best path forward. Um, we knew that not taking an action was not going to be a solution, that we really needed to get out there and be proactive and get in front of this situation. Um, and so there were many hours um, with many team members spent in that room um, just trying to try troubleshoot and problem solve all of the issues, trying to gather all the information that we could from the areas that were being affected um, to make a wise decision. We, we called in university scientists um, for their information. We actually talked to some of the companies, too, to find out their side of the story and what they were seeing because we wanted to hear from everybody. You know, we were hearing from farmers and ranchers, but we wanted to take in all points of view before we made a decision. And the initial decision was to halt the sale of dicamba short term, right? We did. We did a, a stop sale in use. It lasted for six days. And that was always the intent is that it would be temporary um, and allow the company's time to get a new label in place for the product moving forward. And um, we just wanted to stop the damage that was occurring mm -hmm. and give everybody the opportunity um, to use that product in a matter that might work better going forward. And were you impressed? I mean, did you get those companies to come to the table, talk, figure out a solution for not only this year, Chris, but also, or not only last year, but also this year, knowing that this product would be used again in 2018? Yeah, you know, I was, I, the companies were very cooperative. I can't say enough good things about how cordial they were through the whole process. You know, when you put yourself in their shoes, they were dealing with this in multiple states. So they had multiple directors of ag or commissioners calling them, um, but they were very gracious. They were always nice, and they truly wanted to help us find the best solution moving forward um, because at the end of the day, they wanted to help their customers, which are the farmers and the ranchers as well. Um, so they were very cooperative. They worked with us. They acted very quickly. You know, a lot of this started through the 4th of July weekend. And right. so we started those conversations very early. Um, and all of us spent our holiday working on Dicamba. You know, there were no fireworks for many of us, including a lot of the people at those companies. Well, it definitely, you're in some headlines. Uh, I remember reading about it that, that, you know, that Missouri was taking this bold step. But, you know, you made it clear that you knew something had to be done because no action wasn't the answer. Right. You know, and we've truly wanted this stewardship approach to be a three-legged stool. We wanted the Department of Ag to play a role. We wanted farmers and ranchers to play a role. And we also wanted the companies to be playing a role because we felt like open communication was going to lead to success. Um, and so that was something that we all wanted the whole way through. We wanted to be very transparent and we wanted to make sure that everybody was coming to the table to be a part of the solution. Well, now heading into 2018, uh, the discussions about Dicam are definitely heating up this winter. We know a lot of trainings took place uh, that, that were required. So heading into 2018, kind of what's your mindset when it comes to Dicamba, Chris? I mean, you, we know this training's take, taken place. We know that we could still have possible issues. But are you confident that Missouri um, is going to kind of lead the charge in making sure that this product is used effectively and efficiently? You know, I am very confident in our farmers and ranchers. Um, the trainings that have gone on, people have taken very seriously 
um, after they have participated in the training process, if they still have questions, they're calling the department and they're asking us. Um, they're wanting to make sure they're doing everything the correct way. Um, you know, I feel like the education really opened a lot of eyes. It's been a long time since farmers had the ability to have a new technology to use. And so just having that refresher course, I think, is going to pay dividends in the future. Um, I think everyone went into the training with an open mind. Um, and they truly wanted to learn and they wanted to make sure that they were doing things the right way. You know, no one sets out to want to hurt their neighbor. Um, and these farmers truly want to do the right thing. Well, you're no stranger to the spotlight and not always a positive spotlight, right, Chris? When we look at some of these animal extremists and animal activists group, uh, your name is kind of at the top of their list as someone that at times they, they try to go after. Let's step back. It's been, I guess, 10 years now. It is the 10 year anniversary because it was 2008. 2008, 2007 timeframe, um, I worked on, whenever I was a local reporter, worked on a story on confined animal feeding operations and interviewed you as, as a producer talking about the economic benefits of it. There was so much going on bad about about confined animal feeding operations that as a reporter, I decided to do the flip side of the story and try to highlight the positive side of it. Well, interviewed you um, and did, at the time when I called you to do an interview, did you realize that the can of worms that it may it may open? You know, I don't think I expected that can of worms to be so big. I knew that the risk was going to be there, um, but our family felt like it was very important for us to share our side of the story, to let people actually see what is behind um, a confined animal feeding operation. You know, at the heart of ours is our family. You know, we're a multi-generational family farm, and we were trying to find the best way to bring the next generation back home. Um, but we were also listening to our veterinarian and our nutritionist about the best way that we could care for our animals. Um, and so we wanted to make sure we were doing everything the right way. And, you know, we're busy. We're busy taking care of our animals. We're busy taking care of our families. And farmers just haven't always done a great job of sharing our story. And so I felt like it was an opportunity for me to reach a larger audience um, to share something I'm very proud of. And that's my family and it's my farm. So you did that. You opened up your farm. You opened up your doors. You let me in. Let me see what your family operation was about. You let me see the employees that that your family um, hires year in and year out. And in a small community like yours, the economic impact that a farm like yours has. So we did this story. It aired on KOMU uh, when I was a reporter. And it was a two-part series. The first evening, um, we received quite a bit of, of slack and some negative feedback from folks saying, uh, you know, confined animal feeding operations were bad. And just the, I mean, it, it struck a chord of so many emotions. Well, it also, on the flip side, struck a chord of so many emotions with those in agriculture. Um, and, and it definitely created a big discussion. The Columbia, Missourian, um, I think it was the Columbia Missourian had an article about me that, that the head of the Sierra Club had written. Um, and I just remember, Chris, I came home. It was such a negative article. I came home. My roommates told me that that article had been written, and I cried. I mean, I was 21 years old, did not have thick skin at the time. It prepared me for some of the stories and some of the things I do now. Um, but I just remember crying and crying and thinking, how could an individual attack me as a person when we were talking about uh, confined animal feeding operations. I mean, it wasn't about me, but they made the story about me. They also made the story about you. So talk about your experience and also how a Catholic organization came after you as well and why they even had any role to play in this. Yeah, you know, Tyne, I know exactly what you felt like. And 
I felt terrible for you knowing the heat that you were catching because you truly were trying to share that story of agriculture. Um, for my family, we caught a lot of flack from our church. Um, there was a lobbyist out of the Jefferson City Catholic Church Diocese um, who took a great interest in this article, and she sent a letter out um, to her farming list um, asking them to contact the news station um, about the detriment of my family farm to our rural community. Um, and that that really hurt. You know, those were people who I turned to in tough times with my church family to help me and to um, guide me through those tough times. And here was a member of the church family, even though it was an extended member, um, that was attacking my family farm. And she never had met me and she hadn't walked on my family farm to know what it was like. And, you know, so that was really tough for me. It was tough for my parents. Um, it was hard on Kevin as well. But we reached out. Um, we invited this lady um, to our family farm to see firsthand. We brought our parish priest out to the family farm to be with us to let them see what our family farm truly was like. Um, because I really felt like once she got there, she would see what we do and that we're caring for our animals and we're caring for our farm in a very environmentally safe way. Um, we didn't change her mind, uh, but at least she got to see what my family farm was like. You know, I felt better knowing that I did everything in my my possibility, mm -hmm. um, in my control to try and make things better in that situation. Uh, ultimately, I ended up leaving my church family because it was really hard for me to overcome that at a time when hog prices were extremely low during that period of time and our family was struggling. I felt like my church family had turned their back on me and it hurt. So she actually came to the farm? She did. We invited her out. Um, she still didn't like our family farm. She couldn't see past her preconceived notion of what our family farm was. Um, but, you know, I felt like I put my best foot forward. I invited her out. I wanted her to see it um, and to see what she was talking negatively about. She got to meet a few of our employees, just like you did, Tyne. Uh, we wanted her to see that they were local community members just like us. And, you know, I was really hoping we could change her mind, but we weren't able to do that. If you had to go back 10 years, would you have done anything differently or handled any part of that situation differently, Chris? You know, Tyne, I don't think I would. I think that I put my best foot forward in that interview with you. Um, I'm not ashamed of my family farm. I'm very proud of what my in-laws have started for my family. Um, we're hoping that we're going to leave a legacy for my children and my grandchildren someday. And, you know, I'm proud of it. And so I want to share that story. I want people to understand how we got where we are today because we're proud of the hard work that went into it. We're proud of knowing that not only are we providing food for our family and other families, but we're providing food for our world. And that's something we take great pride in. Uh, it's unfortunate that I lost my church family over that, but I would still make the same effort today that I did 10 years ago to try and rectify that situation. Um, you know, we let things cool down before we made that invitation, and maybe that was our problem. Maybe we should have brought made that invitation sooner than what we did. That's probably the one thing I would change is I would have invited our church out to our farm sooner. Well, I'm impressed, Chris. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty bold because, you know, after something happens like that and you have individuals who t attack you, um, not your farm, but attack you as a person, it's hard. It's hard to actually, you know, take the high road and invite them out to your farm. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if I would have done the same. So I'm impressed that you you actually made and, and went to that effort to do that. And I know that, you know, not all good 
came out of this, but there is some good. Everything does happen for a reason. After that situation happened, you were already an advocate, but it seemed like then your mission became even stronger to really share not only your story and agriculture story. So looking back, what good came out of that situation where you did have some unfortunate circumstances happen? You know, it made me even more determined to tell the story of agriculture and to make sure that people were hearing about my family farm from me. I wanted them to hear from my point of view and from my facts what our farm was like and what we were doing to care for our animals. You know, we purchase all of our corn from local farmers in our community and surrounding communities. That's something I'm proud of. I'm proud that we're partnering with our neighbors to make sure we can raise our hogs um, in a way that is environmentally safe and safe for them as well as an animal. Um, And so I just decided, you know, this is not going to keep me quiet. Um, This is going to motivate me. I'm going to remember this uncomfortable situation that I've been in and keep telling that story because I don't want my kids to have to deal with this someday. I want to be able to pass that farm on to my children knowing that people understand what we're doing on that farm. Not only am I speaking out for my family farm, but I'm speaking out for all family farms, for all farmers and ranchers who are doing the same things that my family do on a daily basis. I realize that we can't all be comfortable in front of a microphone. And I'll be honest, some days I'm not comfortable in front of that microphone either. Um, But it's really important that somebody steps up and takes on that responsibility. And so anytime that I get tired or I feel like, eh, I don't need to go do this, um, I remember that that feeling time of the negative comments and the uncomfortable situation that I was in. And I realized that sometimes you have to get out of that comfort zone to do the right thing. Um, and so that's what motivates me going forward. Well, I will tell you, uh, Director Chen, it was at that instant, that exact moment that I realized I could not be in local news. I, I knew that I just, I was too passionate about agriculture. And even though I'm a journalist and ag journalist, and I, and I, and I am still that way today, that I was too passionate about agriculture to report on it in um, often areas and and markets where they don't want you to do agriculture stories. And so that's when I realized local TV wasn't for me. And I think if I wouldn't have made that decision, I don't think I would be where I am. But it's it's hard. It's hard to make those decisions at at that moment because there are so many emotions that that you're battling at the time. You're right. You know, if you get caught up in the emotion, sometimes you can make a knee-jerk reaction. And so that's why we all tried to take a deep breath and a step back and just ride ride through the waters that were a little rough. (laughs) And as you know, they were rough. Um, rough. But, you know, I I really feel like we made the best decisions um, in the moment. And I think you did, too, because had you not had that uncomfortable situation, you may not be sitting where you are today being able to be the voice for farmers and ranchers on a national scope. I agree, Chris. I agree with you completely. Well, let's end on this. Um, You know, this podcast is really about women in agriculture and empowering women in agriculture. So what I want to ask you, what I want you to leave us with is, what advice, Director Chin, do you have for other women in agriculture? You know, just show up. Show up and take on that leadership role because you don't need a title to be a leader for agriculture. You can lead from where you're at. Uh, You know, a lot of people say you're in a man's world, and I've never let that bother me. 
For me, I'm in agriculture, and this is my family, and this is my world, and it's what I love, and I'm going to fight for it every day. I don't let my gender hold me back. I don't think that just because I'm a girl, I can't do something. Um, And so I think that helped me have that mindset that my gender was not going to hold me back. Uh, So that's the piece of advice that I leave everybody is the world is led by those who show up, and I challenge everybody to show up. Some really good advice, Director Chen. Thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tyne. It's great to visit with you. Well, Director Chen, a great example of what's possible when you're a a woman in agriculture. She doesn't let it stand in her way, um, and it's fun to to watch her her work a crowd. It's fun to watch her work in front of farmers and ranchers and to see what she's accomplished already in her term as, as Director of Missouri Agriculture. Again, that was Chris Chen. All right, that does it for No Man's Land here. Until next time, be safe out there. Way you're talking, it's a cheap disguise.